The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning. The fact that you have invited us to your table and you've made it possible because of the blood of your Son. God, I pray that as we hear your word this morning, as we think about the death of Christ and his sacrifice for us, as we sing, as we worship the King of Kings, Lord, I pray that you would be pleased and that you would work. God, I need your spirit. There's nothing good I can say without you. Lord, I know I don't deserve to be able to even open your word. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would take my frailty and do the work that only you can do. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. This morning we have the opportunity to celebrate the communion service together. This is one of only two ordinances that Jesus commanded the church to participate in on a regular basis. And an ordinance is a repeated religious ritual or practice that demonstrates the faith of those who participate in it. And so you probably are aware that the Roman Catholic Church has seven ordinances. They call them sacraments. The Protestant Church finds in Scripture only two ordinances that are clearly commanded for us to take part in. These are baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table. So the first thing I want us to realize this morning is how significant of a service this is for us. The fact that we, God's people, are invited to do two things on a regular basis. Baptism, when you're saved, and then the Lord's Supper on a continuing basis throughout your Christian life. And this is the one we get to do on a regular basis, I think all by itself makes it very significant. Christ could have commanded the church to do many, many different things. on He could have had innumerable ordinances, but he chose this one for us to do often. There is incredible symbolism here. If we were to ask, why did Jesus come to the earth? We might have answers like, well, he came to, to seek and to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die in my place. He came to redeem his bride, the church. And all those things are true, and they're wonderful, great answers. But you understand that as we celebrate this service, all all of what we're doing here points directly to those things. Christ sought out the disciples, and even at this supper that he prepared for them, he served them. He came to seek and to serve. The elements here remind us of his broken body and his shed blood. Why? Because he gave his life a ransom for many. We, as individuals, get to consume, to take part, to participate in the Lord's Supper because he died in my place. And this feast is not only given to the individual to do all by themselves at home, but it's given to his bride, the church, because Christ came to redeem his bride. And so this service is filled with meaning. It's filled with symbolism. It is so important that in the past, men and women have given their lives for what they believed about the Lord's Supper. Do you know that during the Protestant Reformation, I mean, we understand that 
the men and women that died as martyrs during that time died because they believed in Scripture, because they believed that salvation came by grace through faith alone, apart from works, apart from the church having any kind of effect on their salvation. But the issue that actually sent so many of them to die, to be burned alive, was the issue of the Lord's Supper. Like, they died because they believe what we believe about this service. There's one man in particular named John Firth. He was 30 years old when he found himself in the Newgate prison in London, England. This was 1533. He had just spent five years as a missionary and five years truly trying to to dodge those who would want to put him to death. Finally, he was caught. And he was caught because he was having a debate about the Lord's Supper. Well, eventually, while in prison, he wrote a book called The Articles Wherefore John Firth Died. He knew he was sitting in prison. He wrote a book about why he was about to die, knowing he would never recant. In this document, he talked about the word of God, its authority, its sufficiency. He talked about grace, salvation by grace through faith alone. But he also believed that the elements of the Lord's Supper, did not magically transform into the body and blood of Christ. He believed that the elements were there to remind us of the sacrifice that Christ made. And so it was for this, for his belief in the memorial view of the Lord's Supper, that at age 30, he died burning at the stake. And he's just one story of many. And we might say, come on, John, why would you die for that? I mean, Couldn't you have died for something else, something bigger, something more important? I wonder if maybe it was because he took the command of Christ in this ordinance with a little bit more gravity than we do at times. I know we believe that this service is an ordinance given by Christ. We believe that we're here to memorialize his death. But I wonder if sometimes we come here to this table And we come with like a flippancy, kind of like you'd come to any kind of event, any kind of, I don't know, sports event or family get-together. That there's just not the weight of what we're about to be a part of, of what we're supposed to remember, of, of who gave it and who invited us here. It is tradition for our church family to participate in the Lord's Supper once a month. I think as I look back at all of what COVID has done and and did, the way that it affected my life in the worst way was just the fact that we couldn't do this. We couldn't be a part of this service together. I remember going to the Dominican, and one of the problems with the date of the trip was that it was on the first Sunday of the month. And I hated the fact that I was going to be gone. And then I was so excited because... Eve said, well, we're celebrating Lord's Supper this Sunday. I was just awesome. He's like, are you, are you okay to do that with us? And I said, yeah, no, I'm so, I'm so happy about that because I was going to miss it. And what ended up happening is as he went up to do the announcements and then they sung and he said, okay, Dan, come on up and, and give the message this morning. It's like, what? <laughs> you didn't say that. He, I said, no, I, I asked you if you wanted to participate in it with us. <laughs> yes, I know. That's very different than saying, well, you preach to all these people before we participate. And so I turned to 1 Corinthians 11 and did the best I could. 
and it was probably terrible, but it was in a different language, so they didn't know. They probably just thought, you've translated poorly. Um, but I think, this, I think this is supposed to be important. I think this is supposed to be something that we take very seriously. And so my goal this morning, as we look to Matthew 26 and then over to Acts 2, is that we can look at how Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, kind of what, what the feeling was in the room and, and what um, the situation, the circumstances were that he instituted it, and then see how the early church actually practiced it. And so I want you to focus on the way that Jesus and the disciples celebrated. Imagine the mood, the level of formality, and the weight of what is occurring. As we read in Matthew 26, starting at verse 17. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? So the disciples know that there's something coming, that the greatest feast that the Jewish people celebrate is about to happen, the Passover celebration. And so they're concerned that Jesus hasn't planned anything because they're in this new city. They don't know as many people there. It's, it's not like they have a house that they can clearly go to. And so, hey, Jesus, how is this going to happen? Well, Jesus already has a plan. Verse 18, he says, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. So Jesus knows this is coming. He already has a plan. In Luke's gospel, we find he sends them to find the man that's holding a pitcher of water. Uh, The way that it's said here is like, we are going to go to your house and eat the Passover. And I kind of wonder if this guy is holding the pitcher and he knows why he's holding it. And if he knows that this is going to happen. But as soon as he hears, the master says, this is what's going to happen. He's just ready to do what the master says. And so... They prepare the meal, and Jesus here is preparing this meal through these servants for his disciples. One of the things that's interesting to me is how excited Jesus was about this. Now, it makes sense that the the Jewish mind would be excited. When we think as Christians, what we get excited about, it's Christmas and Easter, right? It's it's the biggest things that we celebrate in our religion. Well, for them, it it was Passover, They would grow up remembering and telling stories of how their God delivered them from Egypt. That they were in slavery and and through all these miracles and these plagues and parting the Red Sea and and living for 40 years in the wilderness, that God saved them from that bondage. That God is powerful, that he's mighty, that he loves them. So this was a big deal for them. But in Luke 22, verse 15, we get a little bit of insight into how Jesus felt. It says, he said unto them, with desire... I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And that word there is found twice with desire I have desired because he's emphasizing it. It's like I passionately desired. I'm so excited about celebrating with you. And it could be because Jesus was really hungry. He was looking forward to a good meal. I doubt it. I think that it was more first along the lines of what this meant but also what he knew it really pointed to. That he knew that he was the lamb that would be slain. He knew that tonight he would be instituting this celebration that his people would then partake in until he comes again. Yes, he would soon suffer. And it even says 
that I'm going to desire to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. He knew exactly what was ahead, but he also knows what this means and what it points to. It means the salvation of his people. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As I try and envision this scene in my mind, I picture this group of 12 who have spent the last three years together with Jesus, celebrating the feast that they're most excited about. This feast has deep meaning for them, and it's an exciting time for them, and they're enjoying this meal together. Now, sometimes I think of what it would be like if we were able to go back in time and actually be there and watch it. I imagine if, if I was able to be at the Lord's Supper, I would be like paying attention to every detail. I'd be watching with bated breath just to see exactly what Jesus did and exactly how he said it and exactly how it all unfolded. But it's interesting to think about the fact that the disciples thought this was just a Passover meal, just like the others they participated in. They had no idea when Jesus picked up the bread that he was about to institute a a ceremony that would be practiced by the church for 2,000 years. They had no idea of the significance. For them, this service was about being freed from bondage in Egypt. And Jesus was about to say, no, 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 this whole thing, that whole thing points forward to the God who would come and save you from your slavery to your sin. And listen, being freed from slavery in Egypt is pretty cool, right? Like having a whole nation enslaved and then having a God who miraculously frees them is is pretty awesome thing to remember, but those people are going to die someday. And that... That freedom, it impacted them for how many years? Not more than a hundred. And what Jesus is about to institute and what he's about to accomplish is going to impact our eternity. And what we're enslaved to, the slavery of sin, the imminent death, that's a big deal. That's a lot bigger than just what they were going through. And Jesus comes to give his people hope beyond the grave, to conquer their greatest enemy. And so Jesus is in this room. He's got these 12 guys surrounding. They're enjoying the meal. And then he picks up the bread and he says, breaks the bread. His body, this this represents the body, my body, that will be broken for you. That I will suffer that I will be beaten, that my beard will be plucked out, that I will go through torture for you. And then he picks up the cup. says, this is fruit of the vine. It represents my blood, the blood that will be spilled out for you. As I'm whipped, I'm scourged, as they drive nails through my hands and feet, my blood will pour out 
And that is the blood of the one who spoke everything into existence. That's the blood of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And it'll be spilled for you. And so we are to do this remembering what he's done for us. As I think about this service, first of all, I think, and and even how it was instituted, I think it's supposed to be important. It's supposed to have weight. But it also strikes me that, that Jesus wasn't one for pomp and ceremony. It wasn't like he made this big demonstration before he started. Right? He didn't get everybody's attention and then have them all stand a certain way. And he didn't, he just he just started. He just spoke. And as we think about this, I think it's just a reminder when we look back to that first time that when they did the Lord's Supper, it was about what was going on in, inside. It was about their heart. It wasn't about all the actions. Can I tell you something? We can go through a Lord's Supper and do everything perfectly have just a perfect sermon and a perfect prayer and and you can open your thing and not have to fiddle with the tab and it can taste better than the styrofoam bread does. <laughs> it doesn't taste great. Uh, just warning you. It, but and and if 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 this was about pomp and ceremony, then this thing wouldn't cut it. We'd be in trouble. Now it's designed to remind us. It's designed to point us back. And that's what should be going on in our hearts as we listen and as we pray and as we partake. And so what do we learn from this? Well, I think that the Lord's Supper is not about a spectacle. It's not some kind of formulistic ritual. It's not just a ceremony or tradition that must be done such and such a way to be done right. The Lord's Supper is about God directing our hearts toward what's most important taking our priorities and even our fears and everything that's going on inside our heads and and bringing it back to the cross and and helping us to to live and to see in light of the cross. We find in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a picture of what the early church was like. And I don't know if you could ever say you look back at any church ever in history and say, well, that church was perfect. But if there was a church at any point that was pretty close... It's this church in this passage. The apostles and and Peter have just spoken at Pentecost. They've been filled with the Spirit. And after Peter preaches this message, 3,000 people come to know Christ as Savior. And 3,000 people are added to the church. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayer. So there's four things that this church is participating in on a regular basis. It is the apostles' doctrine. It's the word of God, truth. It is fellowship, the community that we're trying to build, this family here. And then it's the breaking of bread. It's the communion service. And it's prayers, speaking to God. This is what the church did. And we get a little bit more detail about how it happened in verse 46. It says, They, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God, and finding favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. As they met together, we only find two words that really help us describe what it looked like. Those words are found at the end of verse 46. It says, 
they met with gladness and singleness of heart. And so as we think about this service, and as I've mentioned already, we remember the death of Christ. We remember his sacrifice, his suffering, the torture he endured. And that, coupled with the fact that he died on the cross, should make us sad. But it's interesting when it describes what this service was like and what the early church was like. It was was glad. It was joyful. Gladness, right? Well, why? Because they weren't memorializing a Savior who died and then was buried and stayed there. They were memorializing a Savior who died for them, was buried, and then rose again. And now they were worshiping the, the Christ who was seated at the right hand of God and mediating for them, even in this moment. And so this is a joyful time because we remember what Christ did. Yes, we remember what it cost him, but we also know that he's alive. And so we serve a risen Savior. This is a time we come together with gladness. And then the second word we find there is singleness of heart. And this idea can can be unity, that they came together kind of unified as as a family. But it also means simplicity. That it wasn't all about all of the actions and the drama. It was about remembering simply. It was about meeting together simply. It was about the simple gospel of Christ. And this is what described the early church. And so, as we meet together this morning, we come together to do four things. We come together to remember. To remember what Christ has done for us, for each of us. And that, in itself, unites us together. Because there isn't one person here that comes to God on their own merits. We all come to the foot of the cross. And so we come remembering Christ, remembering his sacrifice, and then in light of that, we come examining ourselves. Think about your life. Think about what you're living for. Think about your actions. Do they line up with the holiness that our God is? We're supposed to live in light of the cross. And so Christ died for sin. How can we gladly participate in the sin that Christ died for? And so we don't just remember a death and then celebrate the fact that it means we can do whatever we want. We remember that Christ died for sin because it's awful and it's terrible, and he's called us to better than that. He's called us to live for him. So we examine ourselves, and we hope. We gather together because this is exciting, because we get to do this until one day he comes again. This is not a permanent thing. Someday we all get together and feast around the Lord's table in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is something we do in the meantime. We hope. And finally, we declare the gospel. Declare his death until he comes. This is just symbolic of the fact that as we participate, we all recognize we're sinners who've been saved by the the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. We're sinners saved by grace. And that is the gospel. And so this morning, as we come to the table, we remember how good our God is, that he is the shepherd that died for lost sheep, that he is the creator that died for his creation. We remember that God the Father made the Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.
And so, I want to encourage you, as we participate in just a moment in Lord's Supper, take this time, remember his death, examine yourself, may this fill you with hope as we declare the gospel until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we serve a God who loved us so much that you died, you sent your son to die in our place. Lord, I thank you for this service that unites us together, thinking about and remembering our Savior, considering ourselves with the hope that he's coming again. Lord, we pray that everything that's said and done is honoring and glorifying to you. Thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.